handout. I uh, appreciate the, the men uh, passing out the half sheets front and back. Um, and if you did not get the handout, it's a half sheet front and back. Uh, we will follow along if you want to use that to fill in the blanks and to follow along this morning. But we'll turn to Genesis chapter number 2. All right, we've kind of taken. Um, postscript, some of the things that he said last night, and I uh, want to really just uh, be a help and encouragement to our families, as uh, was mentioned uh, by Evangelist Barber last night, uh, strong churches are the results of strong homes, and no doubt, strong homes are the result of strong fathers, godly fathers. We know how important, obviously, the mom and the dad are, but there's something about a godly father, and the way in which he leads his home, that makes a huge difference. Even culturally speaking, society, research has shown over and over and over through various sociological, thank you, various sociological studies, cultural studies, the absence of a father in the home or an absentee father or a disconnected father is one of the number one factors that contributes to a child's poverty, to a child's insecurities, and it has economic as well as criminal and other social factors where a father is not a strong leader, a godly man, a man of upright moral character, God-fearing, it has a tremendous effect on the home in a negative way. And I just am burdened that we have, especially as we see the next generation coming up, I'm thankful we have a diverse church. We have everything from uh, great-grandparents and grandparents all the way down to, to, to young families, to, to families uh, married couples just getting started. We have single adults. We have teens. We have children. I'm thankful for a very diverse church. And as a pastor, I want to help our church. I want to help our families. I want to help us raise a, a generation. We're now into the Gen Z and the Gen Alpha generation. We were joking yesterday. We were doing a little bit of shopping. And Josiah got out his iPhone and was trying to pay for his purchase with his iPhone because he has his bank card saved to his digital um, wallet on his, on his, I don't know, is it an iWallet? I don't know what it's called. It's, anyway, it's on his iPhone. And the place that we were at did not use Apple Pay. Shame on them, right? Who in the world does not have Apple Pay in today's world? Right? No, anyway, they didn't have Apple Pay, so he didn't have his bank card with him. But Dad came to the rescue, and I took care of it, and I told him I'd just transfer the money later. <laughs> but we were joking with the, cash, the lady at the cash register. I said, these, these Gen Z and Gen Alpha kids, they don't even carry cards anymore. They don't even carry a wallet. You know, They just use their phone, and they can just zap it and... You know, tap to pay, but they can just use their phone and it, it does Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever it is. And we were, we were joking around and just having a good time with the, the lady at the cash register. But, you know, we have a, 
uh, Gen Z, a Gen Alpha generation that we need to reach, that needs to be reached with the gospel. And we're finding, as studies are coming out, that more and more of them are hungry for the truth. I know that there's many who are disenchanted with the uh, secularism and the humanism. They're, they're seeing failure among leadership. Uh, many of them have grown up in broken homes, and they're hungry for some substance. They're hungry for something that is going to hold on, that they can hold on to, that's going to bring some security and strength. Well, we have the truth. With, with God's help, by His grace, we can reach the, the Gen Z, the Gen Alpha, with the gospel. And it's so important for our church that we have good, strong, godly homes. So we're going to uh, have that theme really throughout the day today. But I want us to go to Genesis 2 and verse 24. Who would like to read for us Genesis 2 and verse 24? Anybody want to read that out loud for us? Genesis 2 and verse 24. Uh, Becky's got it, okay. Key verse. Who would have thought that this would be such a controversial verse today? Who would have thought that Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, would be such a controversial text today? The basic biological realities of male and female, of husband and wife. How did we ever get to this place in our culture where even these basic common sense realities are considered archaic, bigoted, discriminatory, outdated, you name it, all the different descriptions. But very clearly, Genesis 2 and verse 24, therefore shall a, what? A man, a male, leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, female, and they shall be one flesh. God ordained marriage right there in the garden. So we see foundationally when it comes to the home, three God ordained institutions. First of all, the home right there. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God made Adam and Eve in his image, in God's image, with dignity and in the likeness of God. And then, in Genesis 2 and verse 24, he instituted marriage. And then he went on to say, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So he gave them a command. He, call, he called them to, or commanded them to till the garden. They had dominion, so work came even before sin. And he told them to be fruitful and multiply. He told them to bear children. We're seeing in our culture a major attack upon this God-ordained institution, aren't we? Is it not surprising to us that Satan has put a bullseye on the family, on the home? We see where our culture has shifted, going all the way back to the Obergefell decision in 2015, where there were these promises that there would be protections for religious liberty, and yet we knew as soon as the institution of Marriage, one man, one woman for life. We knew as soon as that was not protected any longer by the government, we knew that there was going to be a floodgate. 
the dam was going to break and the flood waters were going to come pouring through. And now I'm reading an article this week about Polly Mori relationships and how they are becoming the new trend. So do we understand what polymory is? Have you heard of throuples? Where a man can be married to a woman and then he has basically a mistress on the side and it's considered a legal, um, legally recognized relationship. It's called a throuple. A man and a woman. Sometimes it's a man and a man and then one of them has a girlfriend. It gets really disgusting. I was reading this article and it was just unbelievable. There were, in one, in one Polly Morris relationship, there were five individuals. And they say it's all consensual, so everything is okay. So two women or two men sharing a third or a fourth or a fifth person in their open marriage. There's a state, I believe, up in New England that has already recognized for insurance purposes, for benefits, throuples, polymory relationships. Are we not surprised when the institution of marriage was no longer recognized and, and upheld with sanctity that this was going to happen in our culture? We know what's next, right? We already know that there is a movement for the reduction of the age for pedophilia. There was already a bill out in California by a homosexual politician out there who was trying to reduce the penalties for a certain kind of pedophilia. I don't think it passed, but the whole point was to try to chip away at the age for statutory rape, for uh, child abuse, to allow then for men in particular, men are the one, ones who are most often guilty of this, for men to be able to prey on children. And now there is, I forget the term, I should have, should have written it down. Maps, yes. Um, minor, minor affection, minor, minor attracted, thank you. Minor attracted persons. So it's disgusting, isn't it? But this is, this is where our culture gets when we get into a Romans 1 reprobate mindset. And so we are literally at the point in our culture where Genesis 2.24, Genesis 1.26-28 are considered bigoted, homophobic, discriminatory passages. One more illustration and then I'll continue here. But there's a documentary that came out just in the last few months. I forget the name of it. I think it had a number in the, the title. And supposedly at a particular year when a particular Bible translation came out, that is when homosexuality began to be condemned. Not until that year in the 20th century when this particular Bible version came out, when somebody reinterpreted the Bible to be homophobic, that's when people began to be uh, hateful toward homosexuals. It was never that way from the beginning of time. It was, it was just always these homophobic, bigoted people, religious people, and eventually they got it into their Bible. It's blasphemous stuff. 
It's horrible, but it's in, docu it's in a documentary that is out there that people can buy, that they can get online, they can maybe even go to the theater and watch. And it tells lies about the Word of God, saying that the Bible never taught anything against homosexuality until whatever this year was in the 20th century in this one particular Bible version that invented a new word. Ridiculous stuff. We have to keep coming back to the eternal truths of the word of God. God's word never changes. And we have to remember what God says about the family. Not that we are cruel. We still share the love of God, but we hold to the truth. I said one more illustration, two illustrations. I'm just going to say right up front that even though Alistair Begg has preached a biblical sexual ethic from his pulpit. I don't agree with him when it comes to celebrating a gay marriage by attending the wedding. I know that can be controversial, but I don't believe that a Christian should go to a gay marriage. I don't believe a Christian should go and attend what is literally a witness to and a celebration of something that God says doesn't exist. I just don't believe that a Christian belongs there. Um, there's other ways that we can show love and kindness to the homosexual community and reach them with the gospel. But going in, in a sense, celebrating and being a witness to what God says is wrong and shouldn't even exist in the first place, when they are ultimately doing a human practice of shaking their fist in God's face and trying to contract, I'm not even going to call it true marriage because we know it's not, but trying to contract socially an arrangement that is an absolute assault and affront to God-ordained's institution of marriage, I don't believe a Christian belongs there in a celebration witness type of presence. I realize that there can be disagreements with that. I know that's been hugely controversial. I've watched and read several things about it, uh, but that is where, where I stand on it. I've had a few people ask me, so I thought I'd go ahead and just make that, make that public. Uh, if you have questions about that, please, please see me. Uh, let me know. But that's where I stand on that. So one man, one woman for life. We could go to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, Matthew 19, 4 through 5. For life would include also Matthew 19, 6 through 9, and 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Those are not the only places but clearly taught in those passages. Another God-ordained institution is government. And I, I know the government is, in so many ways and in so many places around the world, corrupt. And yet Romans 13 does give some principles for how the government should exercise its sphere of authority. The government has a sphere of authority. It doesn't mean that the government replaces God. Of course not. It doesn't mean the government replaces the home. Of course not. But it does have a sphere. It should have a proper function. What are a couple of the proper functions of government? Exactly. Thank you. Punish evil, reward good. That means the government should know what good is and what evil is, right? But now we've got government institutions and administrations who are calling good evil and evil good who say it's harmful to take your kid to the creation museum, but it's not harmful to mutilate their genital organs to try to pretend to them, to try to pretend that they can be another gender. 
ridiculous. But that's where our government now, and when a major platform of a major party in the United States, running for president, re-election, makes as a major platform of their party the murder of unborn babies. There's something greatly wrong with the government's role in what they are calling good and what they are calling evil. But they do have a role that we have to recognize. Earl? Correct. And we even see that after the flood in, uh, in Genesis. I think it's chapter 9 after Noah got off the ark and talked about eye for eye and uh, if a man sheds another man's blood by, his, uh, by a man's hand, his blood should be shed also. We see capital punishment going all the way back even to uh, right after the flood. Um, we can see the institution of government in the case of Israel where Saul became king and did not Samuel warn Israel. Okay, you, want, you no longer want God to be your king directly as your king in a theocracy. So here's what you're going to get. I'm going to let you have Saul, and eventually the Messiah will come from the line of David. But you're going to get government, and here's what you get. Taxes. They're going to put your women, your, your sons and daughters into the, the military and be, your, be the king's servants and on and on, right? He warned them. And have we not seen the abuses of government um, since then in various ways? We have. And then, of course, a third God-ordained institution is the church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We read that there in Matthew 16. Of course, the church birthed in Acts 2. And then we know Ephesians 1 and verse 22 and the purpose of the church. I spent some time Wednesday night in our Bible study on godly motives about the church. I've spent... Other times talking about, I won't go into uh, a further discourse right now, but these are the three God-ordained institutions. There are spheres of authority, but aren't we seeing the government intrude into spheres where it doesn't belong? Yes. Should we have building codes and fire codes? Sure. Uh, Denny just had the... Was it the fire extinguisher inspector came through? We had the fire marshal. We want to have a good relationship. We want to have uh, reasonable uh, fire and building codes and safety procedures and maps. And we had to do fire drills. When I was a school principal, we had to do fire drills monthly and follow certain things. Th those, are, those are necessary. We're thankful for uh, roads and streets. Now, I think that the, the road crews have got a lot of work to do for potholes. I heard that Indianapolis is going to have a lot of potholes filled in about six days because they're hosting the All-Star Game, NBA All-Star Game. So they have an extra motive to fill their potholes. It was really bad when we were down there going to and from the airport last week. I mean, some of those roads down there are horrible. I think that's why I had to put air in two or three of our tires because there were so many bad potholes. But uh, Lafayette, again, does a much better job than the west side of Indianapolis when it comes to filling potholes. But we're thankful for some of those uh, things that the government does and utilities and things. And then, of course, the church. We know how important the church is, and it is where we belong on Sundays. God-ordained roles in the home. Let's talk about mutual submission. Again, I don't want to 
uh, steal from our evangelist Thunder. He, he did a great job last night in talking about respect and uh, so you use submission and respect, if I remember right, and then you boiled that down to admiration, if I remember right. And I thought that was an excellent message and how there's respect and reverence from both the husband and the wife and a mutual submission and the result is an admiration of each other. And just that Ephesians 5.22 principle, submitting yourselves one to another in what? In the fear of God, before God. We mutually submit in the fear of God, in reverence for God. And then we see the husband in Ephesians 5.25-33 through 33 is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. So the husband's first example, primary and preeminent example, is Christ. And how Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The wife, yes, submit to her husband as unto the Lord. And see that she reverence her husband. Okay, this isn't husband worship. <laughs> this isn't being a, a doormat for the husband to walk on all the time and wipe his crummy feet on. It's not that. I know there's wrong views of authority that have even crept into the church where the husband is always right in every circumstance all the time. <laughs> and he just demands certain things of his wife and there's just this wrong view of authority. And uh, it's crept in even into the church, even into where uh, the gospel is preached, but there's, there's an imbalance, wrong view of authority, and we need to make sure that we are biblical in our understanding of authority, and it begins with mutual submission. And then, whoops, and then the children, they're to obey and, what? Honor their parents. We'll talk about that some more. So then we come to our second point and third points here. The second point is the preeminent character of the Christian home. And who is that to be? Obviously, Colossians 1 and verse 18, that is to be Christ. Christ is to be preeminent. Christ is to be central, center. He is to be the focal point of our home. And then thirdly, God has given basic needs or drives to every member of the home. We're going to take uh, just a little bit of time here and just kind of zip through these. But we see for the husband, he has a drive or a need to succeed. It is built in. It is programmed into us as men. We want to be successful. We, we see the drive, the competitiveness. Not, not that there aren't women who are competitive, but it is by and large a male trait to be competitive, to have a a drive for risk, for adventure, for success, for beating the other. We talk about the alpha male. We see it in animals, but we see it even in, 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 I remember in school. There was always, 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 always the alpha male characteristic in a classroom. Never failed. Never failed. So you get to recess, you always have, and if you had two strong boys at recess, it never failed that there was going to be somewhere along the line they were going to butt heads. And they usually would end up at the principal's office. Or they would end up at timeout line. And there would have to be some help <laughs> about how to get along. And if one dominated the other, then in recess games, you would have a game. And you would have the more dominant male who would make sure he chose 
the team that would always win every time and beat down the other team. So it'd be 55 to 3, 52 to 0. And he would trash talk, and then pretty soon there'd be some sort of uprising, and then I'd get the phone call or they'd end up at the office. It happens in churches. I have the money, I have the influence, I have, I'm the deacon of the, you know, right? And then they begin to squabble. Next thing you know, there's a vote to remove the pastor, and on and on it goes, and church splits. We have a drive, so we got to be careful. Keep that in check with the Holy Spirit, the truth, submission to God, or else it results in covetousness and greed, desire to dominate and over, overrule and override and overcome and to always win. The husband has a desire to succeed, or I mean to, to provide, not only to succeed, but to provide. There's within us as men, it's a good thing. The knight in shining armor, where did that come from? Did that just get invented by a bunch of misogynistic people hundreds of years ago? No, it was a drive that God put within man. He wants to provide for the damsel in distress, rescue her, provide for her. We're to be guides, protectors, and providers as men in our homes, as fathers, as husbands. But we have to be careful. And some of this overlaps because we can get into workaholism. Well, I put the food on the table. I work all these hours. I do all this and I pay for this. What do you mean you don't think I love you? What do you mean? You're right? And the wife says, well, you work all the time. You're more in love with your work. You think that success and uh, winning all the, the awards at work and having the top salary or whatever, you, you, you want to do all that and you want to be the hero at work, but what about at home? So all that. To be admired. Men want to be admired. We have big egos. <laughs> if we're not careful, we'll let that become the God of our life. And we strut ourselves around and everybody has to pay attention to us. I tell, I tell young ladies, watch out for a man. When you start to show romantic interest in a young man, I tell young ladies frequently, if he's got a big ego, oh, he can romanticize you with the chocolates and the roses and the dinners and all the fancy stuff. But if he's got a big ego, watch out because the chocolates and the roses and all of those fancy dinners, eventually those will go away and he'll be all about himself. Watch how he treats his mom. Watch how he treats other ladies. Does he always talk about himself when you're sitting at the table? Does he ever consider and ask you about your opinion, your way, and what would you think about this? Or is it all about, hey, woman, I'm going to, we're going to, you know? He's going to eventually show himself, maybe a week or two into the marriage, or maybe a couple years, but watch out for the egocentric. And there's a lot of them out there, a lot of men out there like that. And he has a desire to be respected. But beware of dictatorship. Again, wrong view of authority. What about wives? There is a built-in, programmed, God-given desire for a woman to be secure. But she has to be careful that she doesn't try to find that security in the wrong places. Now, the husband should be doing his part, but ultimately the husband's going to fail at some point in some way. He may get sick. There may be something physically with him that he cannot do certain things anymore. It may be that he's not the kind of leader he should be. Husbands will, will fail at some point. So 
ultimately a woman has to find her security in the Lord. But at the same time, we as husbands need to recognize the need for our wives to feel secure and do our very best to help with that. Just a simple little illustration, but for me, I've always tried to be the one to deal with the salesman and not let my wife have to deal with people over the phone or in our house who are trying to sell. Now, you can, maybe your wife is really good at that kind of thing, but I try to protect my wife from those kinds of things. She hates dealing with the salesman. She doesn't even like to go to a car lot and talk to the, the people at the car lot. I mean, we had a rude salesman come into our house one time. It was, it was wrong. I ended up submitting a complaint. But he, at one point, he said, can you, ask your, can you ask your husband to leave? He looked at my wife, and he said, can you ask your husband to leave? Well, we just need to chat for a minute. And Kelly looked at me, and she looked at him, and she said, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, you're not going anywhere. I'm sorry. You're not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. And <laughs> he was just trying. He was doing everything to manipulate, you know. And if, if there would be somebody at the door, I, unless, I mean, my wife would, Kelly hardly would ever open the door for anybody unless she knew for sure who they were. But I'm the one who goes to the door if somebody's there and I have to, to talk to somebody. Just all kinds of just little things that help our wives feel secure. Now, again, there, there are interruptions sometimes to that uh, due to circumstances, but we have to, as husbands, work hard to help our wives feel secure, though at the same time, they ultimately have to find their trust and security in the Lord. They want to be appreciated. Our evangelist talked about this so well last night and the need for even uh, a wife to, to feel like, okay, she's home all day with the kids, maybe. That what she does at home with the kids and with the meals and taking care of the home, that she feels special about that. Most of us as men, we'd be happy with a file drawer, a filing cabinet for our clothes. You know, the bottom drawer would be our clothes. Maybe the middle drawer would be our socks and our, and our unders. And then our top drawer would be all the knickknacks and stuff. Most of us as, as guys would be happy with that. Throw a mattress on the floor or even just, they have such good, I mean, for 20 bucks now, well, with inflation, probably not anymore. But you can buy some really nice queen-size mattresses that you can air up for like 20, 25 bucks or you used to. We would put a couple things on the wall and we'd be happy. But a woman wants to make the house a home, decorate it, wants to look nice for when people come over. We need to recognize that. Help out around the house, do some things, all those things. But she wants to be appreciated for who she is, what she does. But she has to be careful not to expect too much of her husband and her children. We've heard many times, right, about a woman who marries a man and she's going to change him, right? <laughs> she's, she's going to make sure that, I mean, five years into marriage, she's still, she's still chipping away at the, at the granite rock, <laughs> trying to make him, right? You know, there are some things about the man, obviously, that he needs to change and that she can help him with. But be careful of expecting too much of your husband and your children. Let's move on to fathers. We're going to continue to try to make these practical. I know we're not going to be able to spend a lot of time here. But what about fathers? To produce themselves in their children. The desire of the father to be a successful dad. To see himself, in a sense, reproduced in his, in his child. Warning, warning for us as dads. We can try to live out our success story, our dream vicariously through our kids. Beware of pride. Have you, have you ever seen the book Trophy Child? Fascinating book about how parents have to have 
children successful in so many different areas from sports to music to whatever. And then their child becomes the trophy child that has to be protected at all costs. And sometimes as dads, it's sports, right? We have the jock, the one child in our home who's the jock. And they are going to get whatever, the scholarship, the... And sometimes there are dads that they'll ignore the rest of their kids. They'll spend almost all their money. They will invest so much in that one child. And I remember uh, a family, and the dad was just, it was, she was a good softball player. And the family had travel teams, on and on and on it went. And she was senior, junior, senior, high school, broke her arm, sliding into a base. All of a sudden, uh-oh, scholarships in jeopardy, you know. And I think she did eventually play some college softball. But it was like a wake-up call. Because just that quick, on a slide into third base, that arm was broken and everything was in jeopardy. And that family was not, they weren't in church. There was very little time for God. All the other times that were spent with the family were pretty much spent around softball. You know? And there could be a multitude of other things. And some families balance those things well. But most of the time I see where one child gets almost all the attention and all the money. And just it can be idolatrous at times. And a dad can get very prideful in uh, having the success of uh, his kids, whether it be in sports or whatever it might be. He should be setting life's goals for his children. In other words, setting forth what? Setting forth the will of God. Because that's the warning. Beware of causing your children to miss the will of God. I know pastors who have almost called their own children into the ministry. Their daddy called. Their son had to be a pastor, just like daddy. That's dangerous. If, they don't, if the dad doesn't allow God to work and for God to call, that boy could end up in the ministry and not be called there. And that is a woeful place to be. I'll tell you right now, there have been many times in the ministry where I have hung on to the call that God had placed upon my life. I'm not saying I've ever been depressed in the ministry. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying I haven't had hard days in the ministry. I have. But I remember a particular time where I was in a particularly difficult situation and I just... Me and the Lord had a, had a talk, and God was doing a lot of work in my heart because he was like, you're not quitting. It wasn't like I was quitting. I don't want to say it the wrong way. But don't even consider that. Don't even consider that. Don't even put that in your brain because I've called you. I've called you. You're going to have to deal with these people in this situation. You're not going to run from it and try to find some easier place. This is where God has called you. I've put this... I can understand why Paul said to Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you. He encouraged Timothy. He was a young pastor. Again, I don't want that to come across the wrong way, but dads who call their boys into the ministry, they, they do their, their children a disservice. It, it can be in other areas as well, but what is a dad to be doing? Continually setting forth the will of God. What does God have for you? Have you considered this? Where does that begin? It begins in the home, family devotion, setting the right example, and taking them to church. Getting kids, getting our children in church on a regular, consistent basis under the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, putting before them good, godly examples 
so thankful for that in my own life. And then the dad is to transmit a philosophy of life to their children. Of course moms do a lot with this. Of course moms contribute to this. But fathers have such a way of setting the tone for life and the philosophy of life. And more is caught than taught, right? They see. Don't our children see where our interests are, where our time and our money is spent, what we love, our passions? They see that. They, they, they pick up on things. It's, it's rebuking. It's convicting. But beware of compromising God's principles. Questions or comments so far before we get to moms? All right. How about mothers? Letter D. Three points here, hopefully practical points for mothers. Moms want to protect their children from danger. And there's a need there that's God-given, a desire there that's God-given. We've heard the mama bear mentality, right? But we have to warn, God warns moms about overprotecting. There was the helicopter parents, helicopter moms, and then it became the hovercraft parents, hovercraft moms, and then it became the lawnmower parents. Who are the lawnmower ones? They, they knock every obstacle, every hardship, every difficulty out of their kid's life at all costs into the extremes. And I've met a few of those through the years. I've met the helicopters, the hovercrafts, and the lawnmowers. I've met them all. And they think that their child should never have an unhappiness, never have a difficulty, never meet anybody who disagrees with them. And they will come and they will bring their flamethrowers and their tanks and their army reserves to make sure their child has the easiest, the best, and the most, and nobody gets in their way. (laughs) And there's a certain God-given desire that God has given a mom for the protection of her children. That's good, but that can get... (laughs) <laughs> that can go too far, right? Because what if we knock all the obstacles out of our child's way and they never have a hard time, they never understand sadness, there's never unhappiness, they're always happy all the time, given all, always what they want, always told that they're good. What's going to happen to that child? They're going to be very disappointed. They're going to be spoiled, rotten brats. And they probably won't want God because God might tell them that they're wrong. God might tell them in his word that they're sinners. And then why would they want God if they've always been right? Why would they ever think that they're sinners if they've ever committed a sin? When Kelly got that, I've told this before, but when Kelly got that message back from the mom after the daughter was caught in a lie, this is age four, age four. Kelly's teaching K-4, pre-kindergarten. Daughter lied, lied, bold-faced lie. Kelly sent a message to the mom. Mom replied, my daughter wouldn't lie. She's only four years old. She wouldn't even know how to do that. <laughs> okay, we're going to have a long year here, you know. <laughs> Your four-year-old doesn't know how to lie. She was born speaking lies, right? Anyway, but we have to, moms have to be careful uh, with that. To see their children happy all the time, be, wearing, be, be aware of worldliness. I've already spoken to that a little bit. But moms can get caught up in just always trying to make sure little boy, little girl are happy. So what happens at the grocery store, at the retail store? They throw a fit. They just keep getting more and more. Eventually, they're going to learn. They can manipulate mom and dad. 
I've told the story before. We went to Target. Emily threw a fit. We marched out to the van. I took her to the back of the van. I looked around, made sure nobody was looking, and she saw the, the stars and the stripes. And she never, we never, I'm honestly, I mean, other than a little bit here or there, she never had a temper tantrum in the store ever again. Um, I just told her, this is the, you're not going to come into the store and demand that you get everything that's on the shelf whenever you want it. And we took care of business. And thankfully, um, by the grace of God, the nerve endings in her rear end went to her brain. It spoke to her heart because <laughs> she didn't, she didn't do that again. Um, but making our children happy all the time, be very, very careful about that. It breeds worldliness. She needs to teach her children. There's a desire and a need to teach her children morality. But beware of legalism and spiritual cloning. Sometimes a mom, just like a dad, a mom can expect little girl to be just like mom in every way and do everything exactly the way mom does. And just like a dad can be that way, especially when it comes to performance and success and abilities, a mom can be that way too. A mom can be just like trying to clone daughter to be just like or the mom has to sometimes, and this is sometimes the danger, okay, there are other factors, but sometimes a mom can get so protective of her little boys that she f- feminizes the boy. You understand what I'm saying? I don't mean that the wrong way. I know there's a lot of other factors. But sometimes a mom can get so absorbed that she can feminize a boy. There's other factors, other things that come into play, but... We want our boys to grow up. They don't all have to be weightlifters, bench pressing 500 pounds, and ho, 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 you know, the Tim Allen, whatever, you know. We don't all have, okay, there's an extreme to that that's wrong. But Jacob, Jacob and, um, Jacob and Esau, Esau was the adventuresome out in the woods and getting the, the kill and bringing back. And Jacob was more the, the kid in the tent, Helping out around the house, maybe not as sports-oriented, adventuresome, but he still needed to be a man, right? He still had to develop his masculinity, and God obviously did that, and eventually Jacob would be used greatly of the Lord. A lot of rough edges, but boys need to grow up to be boys. Girls need to grow up to be girls, and our world is, in, what is it, androgenizing? <laughs> it's disgusting sometimes. you got a bunch of sissy boys and then you end up with people like Dylan Mulvaney, who's a sissy boy who thinks he's a girl. Anyway, it, but we got to, moms have such a tremendous influence on their, young, on, their, on their boys. I've seen Kelly's incredible influence on our boys. Such an important role in the home. It's just incredible, the moms. As the dad provides the tone, the leadership, and all the things we just talked about, the mom has such a tremendous influence. And I'm so thankful for Kelly's influence and for my mom's influence in, in my life and Kelly with our, our kids. A few minutes we have left, children. Obey and honor. Beware of rebellion and dishonor. Have we ever seen rebellion really produce good results in the home? I know moms and dads can be just... I, mean, I, think, I think children need to give moms and dads a lot more benefit of the doubt. It's tough being a mom and dad. It's the best and the hardest thing all at the same time. But just the fact that mom and dad stay together and bring you to church, those two things alone ought to cause you to obey and honor. There might be some hypocrisy. Well, what's the definition of hypocrisy? All of us, some of the time. 
Some of us all the time, okay? The some of us all the time are particularly dangerous, okay? But children need to obey. There's very few times, occasionally there are times where a mom or dad asks a child to do something that's in direct violation of God's word. But I think that's rare. But I have seen incredible stories. I think of even my own parents and some of the ways that God helped them through particularly difficult home situations. Rebellion is not the answer. My mom and dad, you just don't understand. They're this and they're this and they're this and this. That excuses all of my rottenness and all my rebellion and all of my disobedience. And that's why I can dishonor my parents. No, does that, is that going to fly at the judgment seat? I realize when they're really young, there's more influence. And I understand there are ways in which, I mean, we have terrorist organizations that train their children from the time that they're little, able to walk, that Jews need to die. I mean, it's unbelievable. That's obviously incredibly destructive. And I know some kids grow up in incredibly destructive homes. But they, a child should not resort to rebellion and dishonor. A child wants to find purpose and fulfillment. Find that in the Lord. Find that in service. Wasn't it a joy to see young people serving last night? What a tremendous joy. There's the fulfillment. There's the purpose in serving the Lord, in serving others. That's where we're going to find, as young people, our, our greatest purpose and fulfillment. Not in the flesh and the world. Children want approval. Sadly, sometimes moms and dads don't do enough of that. So... They have to be careful, though, that they don't become hypocrites themselves. They may, it's, they may see it modeled in their parents' lives, hopefully not, or see failure in leaders. But be careful of children as a child that you don't develop those same kinds of hypocritical, two-faced, manipulative uh, ways. Be careful about that. And then find good role models. Look up to good, godly men and women in the church, good, godly moms and dads, husbands and wives, there's lots of good role models. I know there's tons of bad examples out there. But again, why do we bring our kids to church? One of the reasons, among many, is to set before them godly men and women, husbands and wives who have lived, for, married for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, who we can point to and say, look at them, look at how they've stuck together through the hard times and being ministered to by the various generations. And can I go back to honor? How do, you, how, do, how do children honor their parents when they become 18, 19, 20? Well, one way is to give them grandkids, right? <laughs> That's one way children honor their parents when they're older. But how else? Ask them for advice. Call them up. Hey, Dad, can you help me with this? Hey, Mom, can you help me with this? Hey, Mom, what about this? I mean, what a joy I mean, we're a long ways from, we got a long ways to go, but what a joy just to get a phone call from Chandler or Emily. Hey, how about this? What about this? I mean, one of the greatest joys uh, last semester was when Chandler called me about something, and we spent half an hour on the phone talking theology. <laughs> and I was, I mean, I got off the phone, and I was just like, thank you, Lord, you know. Thank you for giving him the desire to call his dad and ask a spiritual question about a theological issue. And... You know, for 30 minutes we talked theology, and I was just rejoicing, just saying thank you, Lord, for that small uh, handful on purpose. That's a great way to honor our parents, isn't it? Spend a little bit of time with them. Make time for holidays and things, but those are important things. And then what do we have to do? We have to ultimately, finally, as we close, beware of pride, humanism, selfishness. Those will corrupt. 
these drives. That's a quick overview of the home in our Managing Life God's Way series as we have been taking this weekend to focus on the home. Any closing comments or questions? Earl? You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Good point. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? No? Okay. Thank you for being here this morning. Let's close in prayer and then we'll get ready for the service. Lord, thank you for this Sunday school hour. Thank you, Lord, for our homes. Help us, Lord, to have godly homes. Homes, Lord, built on the foundation of the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your goodness to us, your, your love for us, for Christ being the head of the home. And Lord, may we keep you preeminent in our homes and throughout our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll start the service here in about 15.